Hobos riding the rails, the booming industrial industry, and a slew of murders so horrific you'll think it was an urban legend. Welcome to Monsters of the Midwest. Welcome back to Monsters of the Midwest, you know. Uh, it's been a minute since we've actually recorded <laughs> for real. Yeah, it has. Yeah. It seems like forever. Life and our trip and everything else had just been just been so... My, my uncle passed away and it's just been a lot. It's been a lot lately. Yeah, very true. And then this moon fucking everybody up, so... Okay. I got a, I got a story before we begin. Um, the first thing I'm going to say, however, is listener discretion advised, I guess, because this is a case that deals with dismemberment of human remains and humans that had been living at one time. Uh, so just so you're aware, it's going to be extremely graphic. And I just wanted to let you know that ahead of time. Also, the uh, the moon making people crazy and whatever. So I have a little story. Um, I asked on Twitter if people like when we divulge a little bit of our personal business. So I, I hope you'll find this comical. So my boyfriend and I had been, you know, waiting for some alone time together, I guess, for a lack of better terms. And I put on this really, like, skimpy fishnet number, you know, but I'm having problems. Nice. I, yeah, I'm having problems getting it over my head, like, to get it off of me. And <laughs> I, for those of you who don't know or who haven't met me, I have a lip ring, and it's like a helix. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. I'm already cringing. <laughs> Even before you say whatever the hell is going to happen, but I bet your life flashed before your eyes. <laughs> yeah. So me and the garment became one. <laughs> and I, I could, my arms were in front of me and the, the neck part was stuck to my lip ring. So I physically could not get out. <laughs> it was so. Oh my God. <laughs> it was so funny. And, you know, um, my boyfriend's just laughing hysterically. I'm like, you need to help me. But he just he's just laughing. <laughs> so funny. Uh, that's me being sexy for you, I guess. It was very tragically um, just n- not sexy at all. So, <laughs> Oh, I, I feel that pain. Never with um, uh, that type of garment. But oh, uh, anybody. Anybody that has their nipples pierced knows what it feels like to get the loofah just caught in the wrong spot. (laughs) Your life literally flashes. That first tug is like, I was like, oh, my lip, my lip's coming off. (laughs) Right. So bad. It was so bad. But I wanted I wanted to share. Uh, Yeah. Glad to glad to know you're still with us and you aren't weren't in like you know a dismemberment story like you're about to tell everybody yes exactly i didn't uh i didn't maim myself or nobody was harmed in the making of that situation so (laughs) anyway mark mark safe mark mark safe safe from sexual disaster i suppose (laughs) oh goodness so for those of you who read the title of the episode it's it's graphic. It's the Cleveland Torso Murder. So Cleveland is my hometown, but this actually didn't happen in my hometown. It happened in East Cleveland. So East Cleveland is um after East and West Cleveland meet downtown and there is certain sections that are close to the water um that are highly desirable, but at the time it was more of like the industrial industry was booming so much that the rail system was really close to the water as well. So how you get a lot of transport, like boats, um, barges. We we talked about East Cleveland in the Bessie story, remember? Because there was the lady that had like the the best peach cobbler in all of East Cleveland. (laughs) Yes. You know. So this is like that. Glad to see we're circling back. Yeah, you know. Um, 
here's here's the thing though. Between the years of 1935 and 1938, there was a horrific spree of crimes by an unknown assailant still to this day in the Kingsbury Run area of East Cleveland, Ohio. So no one's actually being held responsible as far as I know. And as we get to the end of this story, you will see that somebody does get detained. Um, but their circumstances end up being just as interesting in this as the case itself. So I hope uh I hope you're still with me because it's kind of long. <laughs> All right, let's let's go. I'm ready. Let's do it. So these murders are absolutely horrific, and to this day, no one is technically being held responsible. So there's 12 victims in all, and all but two of the victims were unidentified f- officially. And there's actually a display in the Cleveland, uh, Cleveland Police Museum that I actually talk about a little bit later. And it's interesting. I'm surprised that I've never been there, being from Cleveland. But so you don't see it all. Yeah, I didn't even know they had one. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty interesting. So, like I said, Kingsbury Run is a place that runs in the East Cleveland area. It's obviously not called that anymore. Anymore. I am getting so tongue-tied today. I'm freaked out about the lip ring thing. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, I never really hung out on the East Side a lot. And I'm not too familiar with that area. Like, Menor is over there. Uh, Geneva on the lake is the east side technically um but I I partied in East Cleveland if that tells you anything <laughs> I went to there you go. Okay. I went to frat houses in Case Western Reserve which is basically East Cleveland but that's as far as I went so the run is what I'm going to refer to it as in a lot of instances. It starts in the flats, which is basically where the east and west side meet. And it stretches about to East 90th Street. So that's a long stretch of road. That's a long stretch of area. Okay. In this area, the rapid transit, which is a type of transit train for the public transportation system, uh, and other locomotive tracks still run through this area today. And it's very popular to get from point A to point B, especially like downtown to um, east and west sides. The transit's a very popular mode of transportation. Okay. The Kingsbury Run is also the most dark, dingy, and dangerous place to be in at the Cleveland area in the 30s. The 30s were... Uh, people who suffered the Great Depression suffered the most in this area. And this area actually got a nickname called the Hobo Jungle. So, hmm. yeah. I've never heard that. Many people who settled in this stretch of town rode the rails to escape the harsh climate in the winter. And just moving along with their journey, a lot of them were transients. So just coming to town for work and then moving along and just trying to find work wherever they can. The most eastern side of the run hosted a number of different brothels, gambling dens, CD bars, and drug flop houses. So that was like the, the you really don't want to be on the east, east side. Real a premium location, it sounds like. Yeah. So this area <laughs> all the festivities. In the, yeah, this one in particular is called the Roaring Third. So it's the last third of Kingsbury Run. And the Roaring Third, I mean, everything is happening over there. And I'll be calling it the third a lot, just so you guys are aware. Okay. So tell us about the third. So here's the thing. September 1934, a lower half of a woman's torso is found by a young man trolling the shores of Lake Erie. The torso had half the legs attached, amputated at the knee. You could imagine what the investigators are feeling when they, you know, they're alerted by this gruesome discovery like, oh my God, I can't even believe this. Yeah, yuck. So A.J. Pierce, the coroner for Cuyahoga County during this time, stated that a chemical uh, preservative had been rubbed onto the skin, which made the skin appear red in color and very leathery in texture. 
which is strange. Oh, right. That's very strange. So this portion of the woman was found, and after the police started their investigation, they only found a few other body parts of this woman, but the head was never recovered. So the, invis- the investigators simply named her the Lady of the Lake. You can already see, it sounds a little folklore a little bit, like, ooh, the Lady yeah. of the Lake. It- yeah, it really does. But they really do refer to her as the lady in the lake, like in documents, because they have no idea who she is. She's later known in the investigation as victim zero. So this, the crimes start to pick up in September of 1935. So a whole year has passed, and then someone else comes up. Picture this. Two teen boys are going to their secret hideout in the woods which a lot of us still did when, when I was a kid, at least. We went to the woods and did our little secret hideout thing. But they head through the trail like they always had in the past, walking through what's known as Jackass Hill. So, oh, God. Yeah. Um, this hill dead ends at Kingsbury Run on East 49th Street. And they come across something so traumatizing that only years of therapy can fix it. Oh, shit. So this is on land. This is not in the water. They find the decapitated, emasculated, naked remains of a white male. He's got ligature marks from where a rope was binding both wrists, and the remains of the body were drained of all of its blood and cleaned off completely, but his socks were still on. What? Mm Mm-hmm. So... The fingerprints positively identify Mr. Edward Andrasy, a man with an arrest record, was rumored to be gay and frequented the third and partook in all of its wares. Drinks, gambling, drugs, and the manner of death was deemed to be decapitation, which means he was, he was beheaded alive. Oh. Another Unidentified white male was found in the same manner as Andrasy and in close proximity to where he was found. This body, also without head, was preserved with the same chemical preservative and later was found to have been deceased for at least two weeks prior to being found. So, dang. Right. They so that stuff's really preserving bodies then. Exactly. Whatever that chemical was. So I'm I'm curious. There's there's so many questions that I have. I'm so curious. But they ate they aged him at around 40 years old. He was never identified. But this is around the time where there were a lot of drifters coming into town for the manufacturing plants, the steel work at the steel mill. Um So who knows if this man was a drifter and never had any records or he just, you know, people didn't really go to the dentist. What if it was Eugene? (laughs) What if it was Eugene? Mr. Eugene. What the hell are you doing, Eugene? (laughs) Right, exactly. Great Plains Butcher. Go back and check out that episode if you haven't yet. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good one. Um, But it's interesting to me because I feel like in a way, the person that is doing this, these horrific crimes, is experimenting. Like, what works? What preserves a body? Um, maybe even a hunter of sorts. You know, you drain your prey after you kill it because it spoils the meat, right? It's just, right. it's interesting. Like, why would you drain all the blood and clean the body completely off and then dump it in the woods? It's strange. Hmm. That's, I mean, that's an interesting take on it. I, I didn't even think about that, but yeah, that makes sense. Right. Just trying to think of who has the skill set or what kind of person would have the skill set. Uh, someone in the meatpacking industry that works in a slaughterhouse. You know what I mean? That was my first thought. Yes. Yeah. That was definitely my first thought. And this is around that time, too, you know? Yep. So, sure. so yeah. So, January of 1936, a woman found half the body of a female neatly wrapped in newspaper and packed into two half bushel baskets that was placed on Central Avenue on the Central Avenue side of Hart Manufacturing Building located near East 20th Street. So I'm like, okay, now we're starting to put 
pieces of people in different places, like so they could be seen. Right. So like now they're getting better and want attention with it or yeah, recognition. Exactly. Or like making some sort of a statement, perhaps. So I did some research. Always got to do the research. I had like 20 tabs open because it's so hard to look at stuff in the past. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, unless you like pay for newspaper.com or whatever, you know, so. Mm. the We're not that big yet. We, don't, we can't afford that yet. <laughs> no, not, no, not yet. But, you know, you can donate. Uh, <laughs> right. So the Hart Manufacturing Company is listed in the Henry Ford Museum. Because they manufactured a tap and die set that was used by Henry Ford while building the quadricycle. So I know this sounds a little crazy, but the, uh, there's a reason behind why I decided to look this up. Because why would you put it in front of that manufacturing company specifically? And then I'm, I, I'm absolutely going to post a picture of a quadricycle because I was like, what the fuck is that? Um, but the quadricycle, for those of you who don't know, was Henry Ford's first attempt to build a gasoline powered automobile. So it's interesting because Ford, Chrysler and GM were all battling against being part of the big three. So they were competing with each other, too. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, does this have something to do with the automobile industry? Like somebody was mad about something in that realm. But I was like, no, that can't be. Well, didn't I mean, Ford is is Michigan, Detroit, Michigan. You know, they they hate us over here. <laughs> you know, Michigan. So that, that very well be something. Yeah. So another thing is a, a tap and die set or tool is a cutting set to create new screws. So this was like very specific, like it had certain it, it had certain size screws so you can like make certain size screws if you needed a specific type. And the other reason I found this strange is because it, they said it was neatly they made it a point to say neatly wrapped in newspaper. That leads me to believe that they know how to pack meat because that's how they did it. Yep. Was pack yep, it. Exactly. That was. I was going to interrupt you when you said that. I was like, see, there yes. it is. There's another clue. Yes. Hacking. And um, it'll come up one more time. It'll come up at least one more time. Um, everything except for the head was rapidly recovered. And 10 days after the remains were all gathered and the crime scene was done being processed, the head shows up in a vacant lot, not too, not too far away from where the police were doing their investigation at first. So... The, the woman was killed in the exact same way as Mr. Andrusy. So she was also beheaded alive. Um, I, can't even, I can't even begin to imagine the type of suffering and, and just disgusting that that has to be. Oh, it, did you ever see that one video, not to go off kind of off topic, but that video that went viral, uh, I guess it's been about four or five months now, re-viral about that... American student that went over, oh God, where was it? Sweden or something like that mm. on a backpacking trip with her best friend. And somebody recorded it with like a Nokia cell phone or some like <gasps> Kyocera or some shit like that of her being beheaded and like the dark internet led it back in on Facebook. Oh my God. Like the, the video. No. Yeah, my dumb ass watched it and I will never unhear what I heard on That's... that sound. Like she was talking when she goes, ow, ow, like that. Like she had no idea it was fucking coming. Uh. And then you can hear like the grind. It was brutal. Oh. It's, ugh. Yikes. Yeah. So yeah. I can't even fucking can't. imagine. Right. Exactly. How, like how, how, how awful. And unlike Edward's body, the woman now known to police as Florence Flo Polilo was dissected into multiple pieces. But what police found interesting about Flo's situation is the killer waited until after rigor mortis set in before dismemberment. Flo was identified through her fingerprints and she was known in the area as a prostitute, but she did work at one of the local bars as a barmaid and waitress as well. So she, um, she was recognized 
And I'm glad that she was positively identified because a lot of these people are not. And even with like DNA technology now, like it's still hard to find some of these people because they just didn't have records, you know? Right. Uh, June of 1936, two young boys discover only a head of a white male wrapped in a pair of pants. So this is located close to the East 55th Bridge. Now, I know where the East 55th Bridge is, and it's it's a big place. Um, it's actually, it's still standing today, and it's in pretty good shape still. Uh, the police know that they have another murder on their hands. Of course, it's getting out of hand and they're starting to scramble. They're trying to find as many clues as they can. And they just, they want it to stop. This is too much. This is absolutely too much. One is too much. Now we have, what, four, five? Right. The body of a male, 20 to 30 years of, of age, is found dumped in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad Police Building. So these these bodies are getting dumped. I did some research also on the Nickel Plate Railroad so I can see if these killings may have something to do with the business and their practices, you know, like in V for Vendetta uh, or someone is maybe teaching them a lesson by doing this and intentionally putting bits and pieces of people in places of significance. I mean, that was my right. that was my other thought. So this stretch of railroad originally was proposed to connect Buffalo, New York to Chicago, Illinois, with its primary connections being Buffalo, Chicago, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Toledo, Indianapolis, and St. Louis. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot of stops. And all of, half of them are in close proximity to what is happening here. Right. And I was actually going to say, so this sounds a lot like the case we did in Cincinnati. Yeah. Um the beheading of the girl, you know, the or like and like the dropping of the different parts which they thought it went down that well, but at the Bob Mackey thing, but Yeah. I mean, the style of murders where the stuff has been, you know, left the industrial times that this was. I mean, these are all similar. Mhm. And we do know about how the Cincinnati and uh, Cleveland had ties to the mob together. <laughs> a little, so a little bit, yeah, a little bit. There, there is, there's also those options. If <laughs> to any, throw in here for this mystery. Yes, if any of our listeners know about Danny Green, he was, he was um, in Cleveland, and they actually made a movie about him, and he was a mobster or worked with the mob back in the 60s, 50s, 60s, I want to say. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not knocking it by any means. But yeah, I'm think, I was thinking to myself, maybe I'm way off base here. You know, like, oh, I'm just I'm trying to grasp at straws, trying to connect some stuff. But here's the thing. This body was completely drained of blood and was cleaned thoroughly as to not leave any evidence behind by the perpetrator. The man had uh, fingerprints to test and six tattoos, but police still could not identify this man. Tattoos in that time was very much um, military, strictly military. So, yeah. Or affiliated. And so that's interesting also. I have no clue, but this is where the story takes a strange turn. The police create a plaster replica of the tattoo man, as they call him. They take a plaster replica of his face and put it on display along with a description of the tattoos and placement of them on the man's body during the Great Lakes Exposition. So... The more I dug into this case, which I thought was going to be quick and done, and yeah, you know, we're just going to talk about some stuff that happened, and that's it. Uh, of course, it didn't end up that way. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So Cleveland wanted to have a big expo like Chicago when they hosted the World's Fair. Sadly, however, it just never took off, and they only held this for two summers. But this event was perfect for police to see if anyone recognized the man they took the plaster casting of. 
All in all, I believe that I read over 100,000 people viewed the death mask, as it's called. It's still called that today. And no, no luck. Nobody recognized the man. So basically, the police made a plaster casting of this man's face and tried to get people to identify him so they could figure out who he was. Well, I hope that when I leave this universe and go somewhere else that someone um makes a plaster mask of my face and <laughs> lets everybody see that it, just seems cool it's so <laughs> I don't know. it's so creepy and weird i'm definitely posting a picture of it because it's way strange but uh it's still on display at the uh cleveland police museum as well it's still there we need to go to this mu- museum man. i know i've never even heard of it it's so wild next time i'm up there we should totally go Yeah, I'm down. Uh, Yeah. July 1936, a teen girl stumbles upon the decapitated remains of a 40-some-year-old man while walking through the woods near Clinton Road and Big Creek. Now, this is near the west side of Cleveland, so now we're moving west with the bodies. Uh, Big Creek. Ew, I had to look up this plaster mask. It's weird. Yeah. Oh. You see it? That was not what I was expecting. And actually. Okay, yeah. The article that I got a lot of information from is actually from the Cleveland Police uh, Museum Museum. website. And the pictures that they have on there, they do have the decapitated body of Andrew, or not Andrew, um, Mr. Andrusy, and they have his head, like a picture of it. And it's, it's real bad. And I was like, I cannot unsee it. Uh, I won't push you through that on social media, but you can definitely look it up if you want to. <laughs> so, is it the one where it's just like literally a head yes. on the bed? It's not that a guy with this. It's not a bed. I think it's or whatever it is. Yeah, it's just a yeah. head. It's bad. Do you see it? <laughs> I'm so- um. Yeah, I was looking at like different like views, but definitely it's rough. Yeah, there's one where you get a little side view, and that's yep. Yep. Yeah, check it out if you want. (laughs) Check it out if you want. We won't put you through that Instagram, I promise. So a Big Creek is actually part of the Ohio Metro Park system, and it still is to this day. It runs through a lot of, like, Cleveland, Parma, North Ridgeville, things like that. So I used to walk Big Creek Parkway quite a bit when I was younger, and I know it very well. But... um, when the coroner came to the scene of the crime, the estimated time of death was around two months. So whoever is doing this is is taking people and storing them after he has killed them. Which has got to be hard for a transient person to achieve. You right. Think. You need some sort of storage. And what? You're going to put in your icebox? Like, you have to really refrigerate. Right. Like, icebox at the local, like... uh whorehouse or whatever the bar i mean i don't think it's gonna work that way i don't think so either so judging by the amount of blood that had soaked into the ground and the surrounding areas along with the pile of bloody clothes and the head of a man found nearby this spot is where the man was killed and left in that exact spot two months ago was before some of the other murders that took place so we know two things the person who was responsible for this was killing and storing these people somehow, and he was making a spectacle of it by dismembering these individuals. Also, he, uh, to me, it seems like, I, I'm actually, I put together a timeline of the people who died and what order they died in, and it kind of shows his escalation process or their escalation process. I won't say his because I'm uncertain, but how like the chemical preservative was and then how the draining of the blood was. And then there's some other things that evolve beyond this. Like, I feel like it's more of an experiment as well because of the levels of escalation that it takes. Although the way that I'm telling it, it's all mixed up. But when you see the timeline, it kind of makes sense. Like, oh, he's he drained the blood, but he left the body here. But there's another one that got drained of blood that was after him. Hmm. So, I mean, notoriously, like, women are not at least psychologically 
tied to gruesome things like this, right. like dismemberment and all that stuff. But I feel like you can't rule it out because during the industrial like revolution and everything, the women were in the workforce. Right. You know, a lot of them were. And there I mean, there was definitely female butchers. Yeah, exactly. Like, if, if we're going with that route that they were, you know, if it was somebody working in that meatpacking, you know what I mean? Just to. And and we did do a case, right, where she was a butcher and she like cooked her man or whatever yep. it was and tried to serve it to his kids or whatever. I mean, she was she was in the yeah. slaughterhouse industry, the meatpacking industry. So that doesn't surprise me. Exactly. But you got to be a big Bertha if you're going to be lifting people up and draining their blood out. I mean, you have to have some sort of a table for that even. But. It's I bet she's German. If she, if it she definitely must have been German. <laughs> if it was, if it hey, was a her. Uh, yeah, if it was a her, big burly women. That's just what we are. We can, <laughs> we can hold a a lot of shit. September nineteen thirty six. A person jumping the train at East thirty seventh Street tripped over the upper half of a man's torso. Police searched nearby and oh. found. <laughs> yeah, police searched by, nearby and found a pool that hadn't been used in quite some time. You know what? Like quite some time, sludge some time. So it was basically, Ooh. yeah, it was a cesspool of whatever had been festering in there, any dead animals in there, you name it. In here is where they found the lower half of the man's torso and some of both of the legs. So a diver had to go down in there to retrieve the remaining parts of the man and dredge the rest of the nasty, disgusting cesspool of a pool. I'd be like, nah, I'm good. No, thanks. I'm to quit. <laughs> this turned All out, right. this right here turned out to be a show and attracted more than 600 people. This is when they started making dirty jobs or <laughs> what's his face? No, I don't think Mike Rowe was there. I don't. <laughs> Mike Rowe, yeah. Yeah. Also, people are starting to get nervous about what, you know, what's, what's been going on here. Who's next? What's going to happen now? Now Be they get nervous, <laughs> right? And I and like I said, I don't know. Like I don't know if it was really in the media yet that they were trying to look like they didn't want to make a big stir, like a big stink about everything. People were going on strike during this time, so it was already really they, just like tumultuous. They were making plaster casts of people's faces. Faces, right? What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, like, come on. You're making Not it a media? spectacle. Yeah. So uh, the cause of death, again, was decapitation. But Coroner Pierce said that the body had no hesitation marks at the cut parts. So the way this person took apart the body knew what they were doing, knew what joints to cut, where to cut. That, to me, sounds like somebody in the slaughterhouse. Right. It could be a med how, it could be a medical professional, but to me, preserving somebody's outer like skin that sounds to me like slaughterhouse. They, they were yeah. using like a pickling agent or some sort of something to preserve the the flesh of the person that they were doing these awful things to. It just all, it all right. makes sense to me that it all makes sense to me. So six killings. And the police are no closer to finding out who did this than when they first started in their investigation, which is fucking sad. All right. It's, it's sad. But they got to work the beat, you know, they got a pen, pen and paper and they got to just talk to everybody that they possibly can. Everybody yeah, was there's too many like hookers and thieves out there. They got to worry right. about them, you know. Yeah. On the and they have to interview them all. You know, these people were in this area. You have to you have to talk to them about what's going on. And they're nervous because they don't want to get caught for, you know, bootlegging or any of that other, you know, illegal right. gambling, all that shit. So yep. people in the area were now referring to their killer as the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run. So now this murderer dismemberer um ruiner of people's lives has a name so at this point newly appointed safety director elliot ness gets more involved in the case so elliot ness is a safety director that had moved around a lot and he wound up in cleveland ohio of all places and now that this is really affecting 
the well-being of the people in the area, the safety director gets involved. He's like, obviously, this is part of my job. I need to be a part of this now. So this is causing quite a stir to have a killer out on the loose and having no suspects. People are freaking out. And these, this area, the run, it's all shacks and, like, makeshift houses. Like, for instance, um, Jim Jones. His family was affected, and he had to live in a shack that was similar to this. No electricity, no running water. Like, they were really, really struggling in this area, but you got to go and, and work the streets. So, right. Detective Peter Marylow and Martin Zelowiski were put on the case full time, and they would work the entirety of the Kingsbury run and the Roaring Third. So, they're going to be asking questions to people. Uh, <laughs> What's interesting is these two men would go into the neighborhoods dressed in a disguise, uh, like a drifter, a transient on their their own time. They're not even getting paid for this in some of the, some instances. They're just going like on their own free time, like at night. There's actually pictures of one of the detectives dressed as a hobo, and he's got like a sack on his back on a stick, and it's it's comical, but he he literally did this because that's the only way to get into the area without looking suspicious and getting busted for oh, yeah. something else. Right, because they're not going to talk to any cops. Fuck oh, that. hell no. So they, they interviewed more than 1,500 people about the murders, and uh, they were still oh. at a loss. But the police, as a whole, interviewed close to 5,000 just to see if they could find out any little piece of information that may lead them in any direction possible. So, so Coroner Pierce was replaced by Sam Gerber. Uh, I didn't know who Sam Gerber was, but apparently he's very, very renowned. He's very well known. And uh, he's, the article clearly stated, he, it said, the legendary Sam Gerber. Do you know who that is? No clue, but good for you, Sam Gerber. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little taste of what Mr. Samuel Gerber is all about. Oh, God. I'm going to take back my words, aren't I? No. He graduated from Cincinnati Eclectic Medical College in 1922, and in 1949, he graduated from the Cleveland Marshall Law School and passed the bar. He was honored as Mr. Coroner of North America by the International Association of Coroners and Medical Examiners in 1976, among many other accolades. So not only is he a medical professional who ends up winning the um, the coroner spot in the election year, but he is a lawyer because he passed the bar. So he did a lot of, you know, things passing laws as, as far as medical research and things like that goes. And uh, he's actually really well known. So I was surprised. I'm like, I have no idea who this guy is either. So I wanted to give you guys a little taste of the best of the best that they brought in to figure out what the hell's going on. Yeah. So, February 1937, a man stumbles upon the upper half of a female torso while on the water's edge just east of a city named Bratnall. So, the conditions and tides of Lake Erie could have been strong enough and move these body parts down the lake far away from where they were put in because it's such a large body of water. It doesn't happen quite often because of how big the break wall is because they're huge rocks. They're boulders. But it does happen, and I don't know if this person had access to a boat and tried to drop the pieces of the body and they washed up on shore somewhere else. You know, that could, that could be possible as well. Right. But... The lower half of her torso washed up on the shore roughly three months later around East 30th Street. It's moving. The, the places are getting wider apart. So it's harder to, to piece people back together, for a lack of better terms. This woman was an interesting case also because she was dissected post-mortem. So the cause of death was something other than decapitation. Unfortunately, she was never identified, nor was her cause of death ever discovered. So they didn't find all of her to properly find out what happened. 
The only mm-hmm. the only thing they found out was she was estimated to be in her twenties, so she was young. Jeez. That's yeah. Even worse. Uh, June of 1937, a teenager discovers a human skull that was under the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge. So next to the skull was a burlap sack that contained the rest of the skeletal remains of a 40-year-old black woman by the name of Rose Wallace. So the only reason that she had been found is because dental records they had named her. And, you know, now it's time. Oh, shit, we have... We have someone's name. We got something to go off on now. So now we can ask people in the run. Hey, do you know Rose Wallace? Where did she live? Things like that. Just something connecting her to someone. Rose lived on Scoville Avenue and the police finally have a place that can start talking to people about Rose. So just when the detectives thought they were getting somewhere, they reach another dead end. People are terrified to talk to the police about anything and shit. You know what? I lost everything during the Great Depression, and I'm upset, and you took our booze away, and I wouldn't want to talk to them either. Right. You know? <laughs> Bunch of life mm-hmm. ruiners. Fuck them. I, I know it. July 1937, due to labor problems and s- strikes, the National Guard was called in to restore order. Crazy. Crazy times. Yeah. So a National Guard... National Guardsman was patrolling West 3rd Street when he caught a glimpse of something in the water with a, within the tugboat's wake he was looking at. Over a few days' time, other pieces of the 30-some-year-old man were recovered across areas of the Cuyahoga River. The torso of a man was completely gutted along with his heart. His heart was completely gone, so it was just an empty chest cavity. Hmm. So this is now a clear escalation in the viciousness of the crimes being committed. So this is victim number nine. His head was never found and he was never identified. This is frustrating, not only to them because they're working the case, but me. Because I'm thinking I could not imagine having to work in a time where technology isn't there. The, the forensic files that we love, know and love, and we all watch in the middle of the night when there's nothing else on. It's so crazy that they had to do it in such a different way back then yeah. to find your perpetrator, basically. April 1938, a man walking to work in the flats spots something that at first resembles a dead fish, but on closer inspection, notice that it's a wo- lower half of a woman's leg. So bur- what the two fuck did they think it was? Were- like a sheep head? Come on. I, lower half of what? a leg? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what just the lower half of a leg looks like. I mean, it's never a leg. It's never a mannequin. It's always something. It's, n- it's never a leg. <laughs> <laughs> so two burlap bags were then pulled from the Cuyahoga River containing the torso and most of the remainder of the legs. This victim, victim number 10, was not identified either. There are still two more victims after this, and the most interesting thing to me throughout this whole investigation is that there are similarities in how the majority of the victims were killed, but there are little changes over time that aren't part of their MO. So, like, for instance, victim number 10 was the first person to have drugs in their system. Hmm. Now this raises more questions. What kind of drugs? Was she a drug addict? Right. Was she a drug addict? Or were there drugs used to immobilize the victim? Unfortunately, I did not find the drugs. Hmm. I I don't know where. Um, I tried to find the drugs on the Wikipedia page even. And... I couldn't find what they were exactly. Well, I mean, this is like... But I'm curious. This is the jazz era, so heroin was really big then. Yeah. You know? And that's why they didn't know if... She was addicted she or... Had she had been a drug addict. Yeah. Because they couldn't find her arms. As we know now, I mean, you could have track marks anywhere. Track marks being, being what happens to your arm after you use a needle, but... They didn't, I don't know if they actually looked like in between toes or in any other like areas of where the legs are. And I don't know the level of decomp, you know, just things like that where 
Uh, I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. So it seems that this person is not necessarily trying to give the investigators the slip, as it were, but more to see how far they could push the envelope. Hmm. Like, how far can I take this? Because that's what it seems like to me. Yeah. In 1938, this would be the last two victims. Three men collecting scrap in a local dump found a torso of a woman, which had been wrapped in a blue blazer, which was then wrapped in a quilt. The legs and arms of the woman were found nearby in a makeshift box wrapped in brown butcher paper and held together with rubber bands. Now, if that doesn't oh, sound calm. like you're getting your uh, ribeye steaks. Yeah, exactly. You know, like there's a specific way that you package meat, like you fold the wrapper so that way you don't get freezer burn. I know that there's like packaging tape, but maybe they used rubber bands back then. I think they did, actually. Yeah. And also what I was thinking is... um. Oh, God, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Back on it, I remember. So when you're talking about the drugs, like, yeah, heroin was a huge thing. But if we would know, what if it was a horse tranquilizer? What if it was ketamine or something right. like that? Then that would definitely be something to immobilize somebody. You know, heroin may not yeah. immobilize. That could be something they're addicted to. But, like, I mean, ketamine and... Any other tranquilizers were not real big and profound then, but they were in like, let's say, you know, a, a vet's office or like a farmer's thing or, yeah. you know, butchers. If they need to take down a cow or a pig or something, I'm just saying. Just saying. Right. <laughs> I'm just saying. The head was also found the same way the appendages were. Coroner Gerber stated that some of these pieces look as if they had been refrigerated. Who would have access to big refrigerators? Just saying. <laughs> and a lot of space. Right. I mean, a lot, a lot of space. Here's the thing. As detectives are rummaging around to find the remains of this person, another body is spotted. So now there's two here, and the police and other investigators working this area look and see Elliot Ness's office window, and it's right in plain view. So to me, it's seeming like, okay, we're, we're displaying these pieces. We're showing you what we can do. We're showing you the process here bit by bit, but in a different order to maybe so we can confuse you in a way so you don't get hot on my trail. Like, doesn't that seem like what's happening here? That or like... Also, you know, okay, like they're going through and interviewing, you know, people that are looked over or they're assuming that this is could be somebody that's like a drifter or somebody that's living in poverty or something like that. But what if this was somebody that worked in, that was a blue collar guy or gal and they're saying, why the fuck aren't you looking at me? Like, do you think it's always going to be somebody that's down on their luck? Like it could be me and I'm not, you know. I run a successful yeah. business. I own a successful business. Um, you come and talk to me every Thursday to get your ribeyes. So does your wife. Like, shit like that, you know? It could be. Right. So crazy. Yeah. So crazy. Now, both of these victims as well were not identified. Uh, here's where the story takes yet another turn. Oh, man. August 18th. Yeah. I need some, I need some Dramamine with all this shit, man. All these turns. Dude. August 18th, 1938, middle of the night. So it's 12.40 a.m. I mean, prime time, right? Right. Day's turned. It's a new day. The safety director, Elliot Ness, and a hefty group of 35 police officers raid what they called the hobo jungle of Kingsbury Run. So uh, they're searching through all of these checks and and makeshift tents and all sorts of other stuff just to turn over any sort of clue or a speck of anything that might lead them in the right direction any direction at this point and uh they really don't find a whole lot they don't find anything of significance and after the raid was over ness just ordered that 
the area be set ablaze and they burned everything to the ground. Everybody's home, everybody's possessions. Don't give a shit. It's a it's a horrible place and it needs to be removed so that we can grow as a community. So is that like the business model for every fucking city and the places where the unhoused are at now? Because that pisses me off because that happens all the time. They're like, fuck it. Let's clear it out. Burn it down. Causing more people to be even more unhoused than what they were in the first place. (laughs) Super unhoused. Yeah. Yeah, so, of course, there's firemen and everything, and they they control the blaze, but they get whoever they can to help clean up the wreckage. They clean up all the debris, and uh, they also search in the morning for clues, which they didn't find anything then, really. Um, So Elliot Ness was berated by the press over this like how could you do this you know really upset how how could you burn down a whole community of people That's what I'm obviously saying. he didn't kill anybody he just collected all the people that were there for the most part you know all of the people just hanging out and waiting for the next day or whatever cleared those guys all out and then decided well fuck it we're just gonna get rid of it and uh the murders did stop after the blaze though so they don't know if that's why it stopped. They have no idea if it's somebody got scared because the police were getting too close, perhaps, or they made their point. But July of uh, 1939, County Sheriff Martin O'Donnell arrested Frank Dol- Dolzalal, D-O-L-E-Z-A-L, is his last name, hmm. for for the murder of Flo Polillo, it was uh, brought to the attention of the police that Dolzal, I think is how you pronounce it, Dolzal, um, had lived with Flo for a short time and that he was also acquainted with both Edward Andresy and Rose Wallace. Um, okay. Yeah, so they arrest this man. They bring him in. They ask him some questions. And uh, they said, we're going we're gonna to talk to you. We're going to talk to you a little bit about this because we need, uh, we need some answers. And so far, you're the closest person that has been in contact with any of the people that we have positively identified. His confession, however, and this is according to the Cleveland Police Museum, his confession turned out to be a quote, bewildering blend of incoherent ramblings and neat, precise details, almost as if he had been coached. Oh, shocking, fucking shocking. (laughs) So here's another thing. Before he could go to trial, however, Dolzal was found dead in his cell. The five foot eight man had hanged himself from a hook only five foot seven inches off the floor. That raises some questions. He's five foot eight, eight yeah, but five he... foot seven. Okay, so he mm. can't even dangle his own feet. Now, okay, I kind of compare it to the fact that, like, we naturally have an instinct to not die. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> like, yeah. it's kind of like when I'll see how long I can hold my breath under the water, you know, when you're a kid, like, let's see. I mean, when you, your body naturally goes into, you naturally go into panic when it gets close. There's no way mm-hmm. that a man could do that and lift his knees up enough to dangle for long enough without going <laughs> into that panic to hang himself. I'm fucking sorry. Right. That's and fucking science. Know- <laughs> it's fucking science, bro. It- <laughs> And you want to know, it's, it's, it's actually, you know, I couldn't agree with you more because Gerber's autopsy of the man, of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, of Dozal, he had six broken ribs, all of which had been obtained while in the sheriff's custody. Yeah. So what's up with that? Well, I mean, he didn't obviously break his own ribs. That's silly. I mean, I can probably give you five or six Netflix documentaries off the rip where similar shit has happened from, you know, the 40s to the 70s or early 80s from police brutality to coarse things. Oh, I can give you an HBO documentary, too. I mean, come on. 
this this shit is now all coming to light that this stuff was happening, but it's like it did happen. It does still happen. It does. It does still happen. To this day, nobody thinks that Frank Dozal was the torso killer. Oh, I don't fucking think um, so. There's always a question of why did Sheriff O'Donnell think that he did it besides he knew these people. So it's not really um it's not really known who actually committed these horrendous crimes and I don't know if anybody would know, but according to the Cleveland Police Museum website, the Kingsbury Run murders remain one of the most perplexing cases in our nation's criminal history. Rumors abound is what it says as to who may have been the killer. Uh, Elliot Ness had a suspect who he believed was undoubtedly the killer. This suspect continued to taunt him even for years after the killings. And um, of course, now that it's been so long, I mean, 1939, that's so long ago, almost Wow, we're coming up on a century, you know? Yeah. None of the none of the uh case files are intact. They've all been lost, destroyed, but, removed in some fashion. Let me guess, was there but, was there a, a flood or a fire? Because those happen a lot too, or <laughs> shit just comes up missing. Oh, they had a flood back in, you know, seventy two. Mm-hmm. But he, Okay. Here here's here's something interesting though. Uh twenty eleven. The daughter of Peter Merlo, Merlo, one of the detectives that were working the beat late at night in the hobo gear, mm -hmm. she contacted the Cleveland Police Museum with information she had that she had copies of her father's case files. Oh shit! So there's other recently discovered documents, autopsies, hospital records, um, interviews, and it has shed new light on what really happened but uh it just it's been interesting to see like how they did their job okay how how they actually found these people and what they had to do to really get it in the minds of the surrounding areas like okay there's something really dangerous happening here and we need to find out who's responsible how many hours how much paper how many miles on those shoes did it take to ultimately find no answers but there's but there isn't any substantial evidence connecting any one person in particular to this case so it's still technically unsolved but that, my friends, is the Cleveland Torso Murders, a twisty-turny mystery that has so many unanswered questions, but I will definitely be posting the timeline of the killings versus when they were actually pronounced dead or within what time frame. So you could kind of see, like, this person was storing these victims and keeping them for places that they could put them so that they were in view. Damn, yeah. Wild, I know. But yeah, that's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. At the end, we always do business for all the people that we met at Fort Wayne Pride. I know this is our first official episode that we've recorded since we've been there. Obviously, a lot has happened since then. But we were so happy to meet everybody, and I had such a wonderful time, even though we got completely soaked and rained on, and um, our tent almost blew over, and it was a whole disaster on Saturday, but we made it through, and we had such a fun time getting to know everybody and just talking to everyone. It was great. In particular, the guy we met when we were setting up on Friday night, I just want you to know- hey. Hey, and I'm sorry, I don't remember your name, but literally you made our life by coming like, oh, I listen to yes. you guys. Like all of the people that say, <laughs> I already listen to you. I follow you. You guys have no idea how amazing that was to hear. I, I mean, I think we talked about it. it. Awesome. I mean, we're still talking about it. It's it was so cool. And we love <laughs> yes. that you love what we're putting out there. And we just really appreciate you guys so much, so much. We do. 
We do. And for the winners of the contest, no, I did not forget about you. I promise with all my heart, I'm getting stuff out. We had a problem with one of the distributors that I went through, and my package of stickers never got mailed. So I might just have to uh, go a different route with that. Um, I kind of lost a little bit there, and I was freaking out. But you know what? It's all good. Water under the bridge, no big deal. So we'll get those um, grand prizes and prizes out to you. And, um, you know, we're, we're going to leave you with the code of the Midwest because that's kind of our thing. It's kind of what we do here. So don't go out at night to a CD bar and don't go out close to Lake Erie at night. Things are washing up on shore over there. And we're not just talking about the algae, by the way. You know, tip your butchers, guys, just in case, just in case we, you know, or if you have a, a special lady that you just met on Tinder and, or Bumble, any of them, and she's wrapping me a little bit too, too well, be real nice to her and make your good exit. Also, lock your doors. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye.